Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 92. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And for this week's episode, we go to the theater. That's right. We need to go to the theater. And this week's guest is Neil Trulio. Neil Trulio is the founder of Modest Arts. Now, what is Modest Arts? Modest Arts is a company that has done work in film, yes, but the primary focus is theater. And theater for high school kids. It is for kids who either don't have access to theater in their high schools for whatever reason. Their high schools don't offer a theater program. Or it's for kids who want more theater. Those kids who want to get ready for college. Those kids who just, who has the keys to the theater, let us up there and do stuff. Modest Arts does that. And Neil Trulio is the guy behind it. Now as someone who counts his high school theater experience... As very important to what he became, I love this episode and I love what Neil's doing. The whole back half of this episode pertains to theater, pertains to kids who want to perform, and it pertains to the future of art. What does art mean? What did the theater look like 50, 60 years ago compared to what it is and what it's supposed to be today? And Neil's assertion is, what is it supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like whatever it's supposed to look like. I know that sounds like I'm being cute. I'm not. But the traditional notions of theater that we have can be limiting. If you think of it as only Death of a Salesman or Twelve Angry Men or Romeo and Juliet, that's fine. That has its place. That has value. That's important. But what is it supposed to be today? It's supposed to be whatever engages audiences. Whatever gets kids excited about doing theater. That's what theater is supposed to be. And Neil's doing great work in this arena. And I'm so excited to talk to him about that. But that's not how I came to know Neil. Neil was my press contact at the Denver Film Festival last year. He reached out to me. We go through the story of how he sort of came to reach out to me, what he was aiming to do. And the result was I put on a great run of shows. It was five shows in a row that were all just fantastic. And all of them were thanks to Neil for setting them up. He identified the guests. He got me set up. He gave me a place to record. And the rest is history. So we talk about Neil's work at the Denver Film Festival, his background in music, how he was working in the music industry, and then we spend the bulk of the time talking about the theater and his work through Modest Arts. So this episode means a great deal to me because the arts are important, film is important, theater is important, and if you care at all about the future of art and the future of theater and how the next generation comes to love these things, this episode is going to be for you. Neil is just truly doing great work and inspiring people, and putting interesting stuff out into the world, and that's really the sweet spot of this show, and I'm just so excited to bring it to you. couple of things before we get started. Number one, every episode, this is episode 92, there are 95 John of All Trades episodes, the 92 that we have with guests, and three solo episodes with me. Those are all available on iTunes. So go back, check out some of the Denver Film Festival episodes that we did. There are five of them. All with different interesting filmmakers, people who do media pranks, people in the art world, people in the music world, Zoe Bell, who was in The Hateful Eight, and this great movie called Camino. Those are all part of the Denver Film Festival episodes, and then I've got like 90 more that you should listen to. So check out iTunes while you're there. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Subscribe. You can subscribe. That's real easy. Another way to enjoy John of All Trades? Stitcher. Search for John of All Trades in either iTunes or Stitcher. You'll find us there. And it's a really easy way of getting everything to your listening device without having to do any work outside of initially clicking that button and then writing us a rating and review. That's the only note I want to give you beforehand because I want to take us into the theater with this week's guest, Neil Trulio. It's episode 92 of the John of All Trades podcast, Neil Trulio, the founder of Modest Arts, longtime staff member at the Denver Film Festival, and his episode starts right now. Uh, 
So I used to live not too far from here on um, 7th and Ash. And then when I started teaching the school district, I moved. Uh, my girlfriend teach, uh, works downtown, and I was teaching out in Aurora. So we kind of right. split the difference with the tech center. Wow. So I got you driving all over the place today. Yeah, it's all right. That's good. I drove past my old house, which looks nothing. I mean, the whole area. Because when I lived there, there wasn't the Trader Joe's, and the University oh, Hospital yeah. was still there. And now it looks very strange. Uh, it looks like a completely different city. So that Did was you drive by it when they were tearing down like parts of the hospital? I didn't. I mean, I guess, yes. I mean, I drove by when they were tearing down parts of it, but it was always, like, every time I drove by, it was either standing or a big chunk was gone. So um, I drove by a couple weeks ago, and it looked like they still had two or three big buildings left, but it's mostly yeah. gone. I, I'm always struck by when they tear down a building, like how the guts of a building actually look. I know. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's creepy. Like, there's all that rebar and, like... HVAC and ducts and all sorts of stuff. We were, um, we, we, sh- I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a filmmaker and I made a movie. Hi, hi, kitty. Jackson. I made a movie a few years ago and it, we needed a scene in a hospital and they had just closed University Hospital and somehow me and the rest of the crew working my film broke in, snuck in, the door was open, and we were just wandering an empty hospital uh, looking for cool locations. We ended up not being able to, they wouldn't allow us to shoot it there. But we, <laughs> I mean, that thing was floors after floors after buildings after buildings. And so roaming an empty hospital with all the equipment still there, and it was it was weird. That I mean, sounds weird. creepy yeah. as hell. Yeah, I mean, obviously some of the equipment was gone, probably the expensive stuff, but all the x-ray kind of screens and the, you know, right. all the chairs and tables and benches and crash carts and stuff. Yeah, it was all there. It was wow. weird. Wow. It, was, it was dark. It was dark. That sounds wild. I'm glad yeah. you're a cat guy. Yes, because yeah, and like <laughs> when we do these interviews, he's like, "Oh, thank God, someone's down here." He he may even like jump up and curl up on you. How funny! So, yeah, no, I have three cats. So what are their names? Uh, they are Luigi, Sophie, and Riley. Okay. And we also have a dog, and so we got the four of them. It's quite the uh, menagerie. Did you uh, did you name them or were they named? Um, we named them. We now, uh, Sh- yeah, Chantel named. Most of them. I think I may may have named Sophie. I think that's the only one I got to name. Okay. What about this one? Where'd this one's name come from? Uh, well, his original name was Sasquatch. Uh, <laughs> when uh, my wife rescued him up in Fort Collins. And he was like, he was a kid and he was like six weeks old. And uh, she like we didn't want to keep his name as Sasquatch. But look at him. I mean, it fits. He's enormous. He's enormous. Yeah, he is. But uh, so, and he's got six toes on his front paws. Does he really? Yeah, he's a polydactyl. What? So, yeah. And then he's got five on all the back ones. So he's got an extra digit on oh, every totally single Oh, he totally does. Oh, yeah. my God. He's got two thumbs. He's got a thumb. <laughs> so, yeah, you can see it really well yeah. when it rolls over. But, uh, That's funny. So she chose the he He actually chose the name Jax. So she's like, just naming names. And like she said Jack, and he looked at her, and he's like, hmm? she goes, Jax, and he meowed. So he so chose That was it. it. Wow. But yeah. She just chose his own name. So it's wild. So Neil Trulio, it's been forever. Yes, it uh, has. And I think you can hear your voice on the background of like three of my shows all at the Denver Film Festival. Oh, really? Yeah. Like when um, when I was interviewing Mike and Nathan, whose film blew up, like Stinking Heaven, like went great guns. It was yeah. crazy. Uh, kind of a tough film to watch. Oh, yeah. But uh, really tough film to watch. <laughs> it was, it's one of those films where you start watching it and you think this is going to be a long 90 minutes right. um, because it's it's so brutal and it's so uh, invasive and then you get to the ending of it and you were like man that was a rewarding 90 minutes yeah uh, but yeah what, what an incredible film yeah it was pretty tough I, I couldn't believe you described it to me as a comedy <laughs> <laughs> that's Nathan Silver yeah he's pretty dark I'm, I'm excited about actor Martinez though because uh, they told me about that when we were doing and they didn't say what the name was it was just untitled Denver film, film project yeah. or whatever and uh, so, yeah, I'm jazzed. Yeah, what actor, they're doing next. Yeah, I'm. I, you know, I, I'm in it. And you're in it. I'm in it, and I worked on it as well. And I have not seen it at all. Really? And so uh, it it's at it just played at Rotterdam Film Festival, which obviously I couldn't get to. I'm hoping to see it whenever it makes its U.S. debut. Be just because it, you know you, you film a film in Denver and you know everybody in it. You know? <laughs> right. So and it was such an interesting film. The making of it, you, you you sort of weren't sure if you were in the middle of a documentary or a narrative or somewhere in between or some some strange mix of real life and 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 <laughs> pretend. I don't know. Right. Um, and so I am in it. I play I play someone named Neil, um, who is me. 
okay. in some shape or form. And uh, so apparently I made the final cut. So at are some you, point I got to see it. Are you playing? Are you playing like Neil in quotation marks? Uh, yeah, I think I'm Neil. I think I'm. I think I'm quotation Neil. I uh, I, I play a guy who is a filmmaker, which is me, yeah. and lives in Denver, which is me. And I'm hosting like a film forum for uh, filmmakers to connect and talk to each other, and which is not totally me, although I've been to one or two of those. And um, so I have no idea what I say. Uh, there was no script, so I have no idea. <laughs> How anything looks or turns out, I'm sure it's great. It got picked as one of the ten best films in the film festival nice. uh, by a by a pretty reputable uh, outlet. So I'm hoping to uh, see it soon. I don't know when though. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Those guys are crazy though. Ott and Silver are crazy and and very 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 amazing filmmakers. So I was I was just it was just a pleasure to work with them at all. Well, I was gonna say I I think you can you can hear us like. You you pop into the room at one point and you bring us all more drinks, <laughs> which uh, that's not my uh, my sort of standard mo for interviews. But hey, whatever you you roll with the guest, right? Yeah, and those guys will roll that way for sure. That's awesome. So I want to come back to you as a filmmaker, but sure. like we met, I got an email out of the blue from Denver Film Festival, and I don't think it was you who sent me the first one. I think it was probably Hannah. Yeah, probably. And. uh so I signed up for my press credentials and you like immediately, like you were on it, you emailed me right back and you go, what can I do? How can, you know, what do we want to set up? What do we want to do? So you were my press contact yep. for film festival. And that was just such a cool opportunity because it wasn't necessarily something I was seeking. But once I had it, I go, okay, this is going to be great. And it was, it was like one of my favorite series of interviews I've ever done. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the film festival, it's, it's so unique. It's this really big, amazing, thing that Denver Film Society puts on right here in Denver. Um, they've been doing it for 33, wait, 38 years now? 38, yeah. Um, you know, and not that it's not well known, it is, it's, but it's, it seems to be sort of loved in the, in the greater film festival world internationally. It seems to get a lot of, you know, acclaim and prestige. Um, but locally it feels like we're always fighting for audiences. Huh. And so this year I was doing some PR for them and I was like, you know, we were talking about media and news outlets and I was like, you know, I kind of feel like the film festival is ideal for podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you get a flavor of what's happening. We got such great guests and amazing, you know, uh, filmmakers and actors and directors and cinematographers and we have locals and we have people coming from all over the world and so Hannah and I sort of went through and handpicked the podcasts that we were the most interested in and yours was obviously at the top and uh, just said hey let's let's make something happen um, I think it was super rewarding and the content especially from your show uh, was really 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 compelling and uh, really listenable and you know just great stories well that, um, I mean that means a lot to me how many how many podcasts ended up showing up and doing shows oh um i think by the time we called the list down to who we thought really made the most sense and, and who we could um, work with and who could work with us which is not always easy you have to be really you have to be you know hey we've got a we've got a table and a chair is in a back room are you cool <laughs> i know four four or five wow um uh, of the local you know everything was denver centric uh, you know and great like i said great uh, denver's got great people and um you know we we had a great run but like I said, of course, I really liked your content a lot. Um, and the one thing I like about your show is it, it, it provides the time for an in-depth conversation, something yeah. that you wouldn't get if you were just sort of, you know, sampling through a radio show or, you know, we send our, we send our film guests to radio and whatever, and you're getting a two minute snippet. You know, right. It's just not a story. <clears throat> You know, no, it, I mean, it's, it's publicity. It's, it's press junket style. Yeah. Well said. Um, and you know, that, that certainly has its place because you're trying to get people to come and see exactly. the, the movies. And so you need to, you know, need to tease them in that way. But you know, if someone really likes a project getting in depth is really cool. And so getting to do five episodes, I mean, it was cool because you understood what this show is right. and you tailored the guest to that accordingly. Well, you know, we get a lot of some years the film festival will get a lot of directors, some years we get a lot of actors, but it always gets a mix of all kinds of things from anyone from, you know, artists, which I think you you talk to, yep. to cinematographers and filmmakers and, you know, stunt stunt women. <laughs> um Zoe Bell, thank you. Yeah, um, she's blown up. Right? I know, she's a, she's such a she's amazing. Did you see The Hateful Eight? I did. Yeah, so did I. I I was so excited to see her in that. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, once you get to know Zoe, then you you rewatch those movies totally differently. Um, <laughs> totally. because you know, she's such a such a badass, you know, force of kicking and fighting and punching and blood and guts and all that right. stuff on screen. And she's the sweetest, 
gentlest, most amazing woman, hilarious and um, just a delight, just, just like a ray of sunshine. Yeah. So it's you do watch those movies uh, differently, and of course, Hateful Eight was the first one I'd seen since you know meeting her and knowing her, and right. so you certainly watch it a little differently. So I'm curious, how did you come to be involved in the Denver Film Festival, like doing press and doing PR and stuff for that? Uh, in such a in a weird way, I think like all careers in Denver, or maybe in life, they're just just a weird <laughs> way. I was working. I worked for the music industry for twelve years, and doing um, what? I worked uh, promotion uh, record stores mostly, okay, but yeah. um, promotions for the last number of years i was doing marketing advertising right. pr for independent record stores there's a there's a chain it's not a chain i shouldn't say a chain there's a group of independent record stores called ames the alliance it's an alliance the alliance of independent <laughs> media stores and they're all over the country and they're all independently owned and operated they're amazing little record stores all over the country and i was working with one that was based in boulder called bart cd seller and so i was working with ames the larger group and and working for for barts and um trying to just to you know, keep the record store thing going. Totally. Keep it alive and keep um, people buying and and um, engage engage record labels with, with the Boulder community and, and, you know, all that stuff. And, and it's um, a fight every day, isn't it? Yeah. It, you know, it, once upon a time, it wasn't. Uh, right, once sure. upon a time, people bought records, you know. Every store sold records. They had a section in the store somewhere for CDs and records and tapes when that was big. And um, slowly, 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 the industry sort of just sort of bottomed out. And so I was working in the record industry for a number of years, and Bart decided to uh, sell that store and sort of in, take an opportunity to get out. And he sold that store to a chain, and uh, though the, I think there were a, a, a lo- lovely guys that were running the chain, I decided that I didn't want to work for a chain. Right. And um, so I left, and I left kind of jobless, and um, the exact same time, my girlfriend found a posting somewhere that the Denver Film Festival was hiring PR staff, and this was 2000, I don't even know, uh, <laughs> this, I don't even know, uh, 2006 maybe. Wow, and, so like almost a decade ago? Yeah, almost a decade ago. And so I went and interviewed, all my marketing background was in music industry, but I um, I was interested in film, and I had always been an actor and a, and a director of sorts, and yeah. so... Um, so I took I, I went and interviewed uh, with Britta, who was there and is still there, and uh, <laughs> wow. she interviewed me and hired me, and so I've been involved with the film festival for the better part of a decade in some way, shape, or form. Well, it's funny because knowing uh, I mean I work in PR too, and and mostly mine was natural resources, but I used to work for an agency here in town that just recently closed called MGA Communications. Oh, okay. Did all sorts of stuff, and one of the things when I started. About a decade ago, I remember thinking, I really want to do events, planning, and execution. Mm. Then you do a few of those, and you really have to be wired a certain way for that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And what I tell people is, no matter what event you go to, there's someone behind the scenes running around like a ferret on meth, yep. just having a heart attack about something or several somethings all at once. And so working with you, you know, I would come in, do the interviews, and leave. Like that, you know, my day of stuff was not that hard. A lot of my stuff is on the back end, like... I was trying to watch the movies while raising a kid, and then uh, you know I was editing all the episodes and promoting them and getting it all out. So most of my work's on the back end. But I was thinking, and I asked you during the film festival. So how long is the fest? Uh, the festival goes. I think it's twelve days now. It starts on a Wednesday and ends on a Sunday. Okay. A week later. So how many days is that? Twelve. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So when you're doing when you're doing an event like this, it, what does a day look like for you? Like day, like so I mean I know you have to reach out to media and you know filmmakers and stuff beforehand, but once it's go time, what's a day look like for you? You know, it's it's so it's crazy. And and it's each day's a little different. You know, our job is a lot of front end uh, because you know you said your job's so much on the back end that right. you're you know the most of the content you're dealing with post festival or when when you're not down there doing interviews. Or at least post-interview. Post-interview, for sure. Yeah, the interview's um, the fun part. That's like where right. it's actually great. And then all the work comes on the back end. Um, I would say a day, a normal day would start. I mean, we could be at 8 a.m. at, you know, Channel 2, Fox 31 News, doing an interview with, with a guest in town or running to, you know, see them at a radio interview. And then we get 
getting getting downtown and into um, one of the venues, and usually there's an interview set up of some kind with someone somewhere, <laughs> and then running around and trying to you know we have we were operated two venues the the C Film Center which is Denver Film Society's home as well as the pavilions uh downtown pavilions so it's a lot of okay so we're going to be here then we're going to be there we split up you go here you go there <laughs> um we have a lot of high profile guests coming to town for like John Turturro was here this last time and Christopher Lloyd and um obviously Zoe Bell right and um so a lot of what we're doing is you know sometimes we're just making sure they're taken care of checked into their hotels have their keys, have everything they need, make sure that they get what they where they need to get, making sure their car service is arranged, meeting the car service. But a, 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 a normal day would be, you know, get up early in the morning, get going with some interviews, some early morning stuff like like news or sure. you know, like or uh, like a oh, like a CPR radio kind of thing, and then get get to the venue and start meeting filmmakers, check them in, talk to them at guest relations, make sure they have everything they need, check their schedules, see who's in town. If you can, squeeze in a film in the afternoon if there's time. Right. And then every single night, there's some kind of key event, generally followed by a reception or a party of some kind where most of your filmmaker guests are going to be, followed by a big-time party or a big-time screening, like any of the red carpet screenings that would be at the Ellie Calkins or any big big key event, followed by another reception, and then there's late night parties. There's a the famous or the infamous late night lounge, which goes from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. every single night. And Yikes. your filmmaker guests are usually there, and you want to make sure they're taken care of, and that <laughs> they've got everything they need. And your your press, your members of the press are around, and so you're you're really kind of just making sure that everything that you've laid the groundwork for is happening, and that you know filmmakers are where they need to be and that the the press has what they need and that everyone's got their badges and their credentials and they can get where they need to get. And, um, you know, I also during the festival do film introductions and Q and A's with filmmakers. So making sure that I've connected with them, just like you would do what what kind of things would you like to talk about? Is there anything I should mention? Any special guests in the audience, you know, and then the whole time really what the film festival is all about is really about the patrons. It's about the audience. So it's anything you can do. I mean, Britt is the perfect person that that says, you know, no one is too big in this organization to move a table and chairs if they need to. <laughs> right, and, yeah. So sometimes you're moving a table and chairs. Sometimes you're going, you're doing crowd control and helping with lines and making sure everyone's got what they need just so that they have the experience uh, that we want them to have and sure. that they deserve. So it's a little bit of everything. It's one of those things where it starts and then 12 days later it ends and you, you can't believe it ever happened at all. Um <laughs> Uh, and you know, if again, if you've if you've done your work leading up to the start of the festival, it's fun. Okay, it's only stressful when you haven't, <laughs> and you go, oh no. So eight a.m. What time are you getting back home? Three or four a.m. Jeez, depending, depending, yeah, sure, uh, depending. I mean, obviously, there are some days when you don't have a lot of guests in town, and you can kind of take a short a night or take a short like fourteen hour day instead of like <laughs> yes. like a twenty hour day. <laughs> yeah, uh, if you're lucky. But most of the time, you know, it, you know, it's only twelve days a year. And you try to make them take the most advantage of it as you can, and you try to enjoy it as much as you can. And you know, if you can stay healthy, which is always the trickiest thing, getting through it's a joy. And, and you, you look back and you go, "Wow, I can't believe we did all that in twelve days." But um, I can't believe I didn't sleep in twelve days. But yeah. it, you know, it comes and goes, and then you get a break, and uh, you know, you get three hundred and sixty or three hundred fifty some odd days break till you have to do it again. So um, <laughs> there's there's some magic there. And you know, there were years when I was you know, a full-time employee at Denver film and was, was going, going, going. And then there were years that I was just there. I wasn't, I was able to just kind of take in the festival or I was doing something very small, like in, like, um, I, I appeared in their sponsor video a few times and right. things like that. Or, or just some years they've had me just introduce films and, and, you know, so, you know, you, you try to take advantage of it when you can, cause it is only 12 days a year and it's, it's a, it's a magical, it's a magical 12 days. So, <laughs> well, and one of the hard things, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know your personal life, but my very first event I ever did when I was, let's see, I was like 25 years old. It was up in Beaver Creek and we had, again, kind of different setup, but, you know, we had conference speakers and we had panelists and we had all this other stuff. So it was late at night and I'm, I'm with some of our guests, some of our people, and we're drinking in the bar until like three in the morning. And... I woke up the next day at like 630 because that's when I had to start doing stuff again. And I I go, oh, my God, why did I drink so much? Like, what am I doing? And so is it – have you learned or is there temptation? It seemed like you were avoiding booze intentionally when we were doing this this year. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, no. 
I, I, there's not, I mean, yeah, of course the temptation is there because it's, it's, a, everyone's there to have a good time and the filmmakers come to have a good time. They, 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 yes, they come to talk to patrons and educate audiences and do all those amazing things they get to do. But a lot of what they do is just, Hey, I'm going to have a good time and get to go to Denver and, and, yeah, and connect and, with other filmmakers yeah, and, you know, and drink and, and meet people and see people and, and, and party and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, have a great time. Yes. And, you know, for the staff, the staff has a great time too. Um, the staff has a great time. They definitely do. I certainly uh, avoid, <laughs> I, I avoid, um, the alcohol and drugs, uh, as much as humanly possible. Mostly. That seems like a complicating factor it, it, given it, how much you have to do. It is. Um, yes, it is. And so if you can steer clear of it, if then, you know, I, my sleep is a little bit more sound and I wake a little better. Right. Um, so certainly some people are able to just, I don't know how they do it. They just, they imbibe and they do the whole week and they stay standing. I, I don't know how they do it. I try to just uh, avoid it. You know, I also, a lot of the time I feel like I'm responsible for the filmmakers oh, and the point. press and all those people. And, you know, I need to make sure that, you know, if someone needs to get a ride home at 4am that, you know, obviously there's cabs and there's Uber and all, there's all that stuff. But if I can be there to help them get them into a car and get them where they need to go or take them to their hotel, it's a lot easier, um, on them if I'm working. Well, and sure. So I'm always working. <clears throat> yeah. And there, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a certain discretionary aspect to that. Yeah. You know, where... I, mean, I don't think, not that you can't have fun and do the job. Um, and not that you can't do the job and then say, Hey, I'm going to turn it off at 10 o'clock and I'm going to just have fun with everybody and the guests. But, um, I kind of feel like in PR, I'm kind of always working. So if it's 4 a.m. and you've got filmmakers and you've got media members and you've got this and that, you're, you're still on. Um, I feel the same so. way. And, you know, I left my corporate job in April and I'd watch some of the employees at the company Christmas party just get lit up, just housed. And I remember thinking, I'm like, okay, I'm still like the public face of this company. Like I, I talk to the media. I want them to have faith in me yeah. at, at all times. So yeah. like it was the company party. It was all free booze and it was hosted and it was great. I didn't take any drinks because I'm like, you know what? I don't. I need to be professional at all times. So I, sure. I completely, I'm on board with what you're telling. Yeah, and and there are, I mean, there are people that can do it and they can party and they can stay on and they can, you know, they can and more they, power to them. Yeah, and they're amazing at it, and they're they still continue to do their job successfully and 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 still have a lot of fun and still, you know, drink and all that stuff. Um, yeah, that ain't me. I've tried so. that. <laughs> I like I, you know, you, sometimes you try it, like. You'll, you know, you'll be at a party and you'll, you'll have too much to drink and you'll, you'll think about it the next day and you go, that probably wasn't the best choice right. that I made. But, uh, you know, it's, everyone's got their own style. So, yeah, my style is, I, I'm, I'm pretty sober, um, uh, most of the time, if not all the time. And, uh, it's just kind of how I function. I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> and so letting go of control is, is, is a very difficult thing for me. Probably why I'm a director and all those things. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, so that's kind of my deal, and so I, I try to stay in control as much as I can, at least of myself, if I can. Favorite films you saw this year at uh, 38? Oh, I loved Anomalisa. Um, I thought Anomalisa was amazing. I loved Youth, um, mm. which I thought was incredible. I'm trying to think of, I mean, gosh, you know, I thought I thought the Michael Moore documentary was great. I thought it was his most fun. Um, <clears throat> one I wanted to, you put together such a good slate of guests. I go, you know what? I, I'm not going to complicate things, but one I was interested in was, and I don't know if you saw it was surviving Skokie. No, I didn't see surviving Skokie, but you know, those filmmakers were incredible and the storytelling was great. And I've heard nothing but amazing things about, about surviving Skokie. And I say that because that's where my mom grew up. Oh, no kidding. So yeah, she's from Skokie, Illinois. And so I, I was going through the list of all the films and I go, Holy Lord, look at this one. And so I asked her and my dad about it. And yeah, they both remember that very yeah. vividly. Yeah. Compelling story. Uh, you know, the most interesting thing about that story of all things is, you know, there is, uh, I mean, for those who are listening that, you know, it's, a, you know, Skokie has a, has a large Jewish population and, um, they have this, this parade and, um, this Nazi organization, I, I wanted to march in the parade Yeah, and, um, you know, obviously that causes conflict and turmoil and, um, and, and not just a large Jewish population, but a lot of like Holocaust survivors. Yes, yes, yes. Specifically one in the film that they deal right. with. Um, 
Yes. And interestingly, what I, thought, what I found most fascinating about the film is that the ACLU ends up defending the Nazi organization, yeah. um, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I think we stop and we think, well, the ACLU, they're always on the lefty liberal side and they're there right. to to fight for, you know, they're there to fight for the people who are put down and kicked around. Well, you know, they're the American Civil Liberties Union and they're going to fight for anybody who's having their civil their civil liberties as defined by Take the Constitution, yeah. yes. So I found that to be the most fascinating topic of the film, and I hope to see it soon because uh, the filmmakers were incredible, and what an amazing story. And and you know the subject, the Holocaust uh, survivor, that's um, a key part of that film is lives here in Denver. So yeah. uh, how cool is that? Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome, and it, it speaks to just having not had a lot of exposure to Denver Film Festival before this year. It just speaks to what a great, like, diverse lineup you guys put together. So cool. Yeah, the programming staff, led by uh, Britt Withy and, and Britt Erickson um, and Matt Campbell and, and everyone over there in the programming staff, they do such amazing things. And they, they really spend the year looking looking and digging and, and finding the gems. You know, Denver Film Festival comes at what, what what a lot of people would think is kind of near the end of the season because, you know, if you call Sundance the start of the season, and in, in the, especially the, the season here in the States, you know, Sundance is in January. So right. by the time you get to November, those <laughs> right. films have been playing for months. But they're amazing at finding films from all over the place and films that that are making their, their premiere at Denver Film Festival wow. as well as things that have played Sundance and Berlin and, and a lot of the amazing film festivals and they work really really hard to put together a slate that they think is compelling and interesting and also pick films that they like you know they they, they have a flavor and, the, and sure you know it's fun to see things and you can you can sit down with Britt Withy and talk about the films that he likes and what, what he picks and those are some of my favorite films in the festival you talk about festival season and, you know, you said there's still premieres, but I mean, Hollywood has no off season, like, right. and nor do artists, you know, Hollywood is sort of a narrow scope here, but sure. there's films being made all the time. So yeah. it makes sense that, you know, Hey, our film's coming out here soon. We right. may as well premiere it in November. Yeah. Like we're not going to wait till January or June or whatever. Yeah. You never know um, when you make a film. I mean, a lot of times you target a, a big festival, like, okay, we're going to make this film and we're going to hope we date, we premiere this festival or that yeah, festival. In Toronto or Tribeca yeah. or whatever. Um, we made a film, I made a film a, a number of years ago and we were just happy to be taken and seen, shown by anybody <laughs> at all. And we premiered at the uh, Dallas uh, International Film Festival, which is in April. And um, what was the name of that film? Uh, we Are the Sea. That's right. The, name of the film. And can you talk about that a little bit and how, uh, because I was reading a little bit about it. I haven't seen it. But uh, I was reading about uh, how the band Iron and Wine really played a key part into that. Yeah, they did. You know, a lot of it comes And, and they do such beautiful music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Iron and Wine's amazing. And Sam Beam, who is uh, the main um, force behind Iron and Wine, is, is, a, is a tremendous person. You know, it's interesting because I was working in the music industry and um, I'd been a theater maker my whole life and uh, been involved in theater and, and, you know, done some film when I was young. And um, I heard the first Iron and Wine record and I was at my record store and I put the headphones on and I was like, wow, this is so, I feel like there's a story being told beyond just the individual, the story of the individual songs. There's a greater story right. here. And it, that, that would have started, man, that's I'm trying to think maybe that was 2003. Maybe I heard that record. Uh, the Creek drank the cradle. So, and, semi-related question. Uh, are you, yeah. into, are you into Coheed and Cambria at all? Um, yeah, I'm a little bit sure. I mean, that's the one thing I learned when I was working in radio and I was, and I worked in the music industry. Um, you're into everybody. everybody. Right. Every, you know, what, um, I used to work with uh, Mike McKay when he was the radio DJ at KTCL. Okay. And, yeah. um, I, I remember I was young. I was really young. I was 18, 19 years old. And I was working with him and uh, he leaned over to me. He's like, who's your favorite? And I don't even know who I said. This band, Radiohead, who knows what I said. Yeah. And he leaned over to me and said, in this business, everyone's your favorite. <laughs> and uh, that was probably one of the best pieces of advice I'd ever, I'd ever heard. Um, because yeah, that's, you know, everyone's your favorite, but the, the iron and wine thing. Um, so I, you know, I heard the music and I thought this sounds like a story and um, ended up working for the film festival and got a lot of, real life understanding of how film festivals work and how films are selected. And then I, in 2007, me and a, an amazing team, a talented, talented team of filmmakers um, started modest films and made, we are the sea. 
and it came out. It premiered in 2010. Um, it did play Denver Film Festival, so that year I didn't work at all. I just was a <laughs> filmmaker, which was weird. Uh, walking the red carpet, and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd called the red carpet, you know, ye- for years, and I'd, you know, set up press, and then all of a sudden there I was walking it, and how <laughs> someone else was calling my name, and it was very strange and very surreal. I was doing Q and A's with audiences, and it was very surreal. Was but, it, it, uh, it had to be yeah. almost like an out of body experience. It was, you know, it's funny because I, I try to think back what it was like to being in the festival. And it's hard for me to remember um, because it felt so out of body. Britta, who hired me to work at the film festival, was introducing my film, uh, introducing me to talk to audiences. It <laughs> right. was very surreal. And um, like I said, you know, my I always remember this. We we, were, we pulled up, the de- we were doing the Dallas Film Festival and we got to Dallas, me and Chantel Frazier, my girlfriend, um, who, who was an amazing actress in the film and also an amazing artist. She's also the art director for the film. Nice. And we, we arrive in Dallas and we have a, we have like a minute to get to our hotel and get changed. And then a, a car picks us up. It's going to take us to the opening night red carpet. And you know, I know this. I have film festivals. Come on. I know this. So <laughs> I get in the car. We get in the car. The car pulls up a door. The door opens. Someone opened the door for us and we step out of the car. We step onto the carpet. And we already have microphones in our faces and cameras in our faces. And we, you know, you do this thing where you walk, you take a step, they, someone walks you down, they go, here's this person's from this, you know, news outlet, this person's from this news outlet, this person, can you stop for a photo? Right. And you, we did it. We just did it. Do, 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 the do, step do. and repeat, right? Yeah, the whole step and repeat, the whole thing. Yeah. And um, I think Bill Paxton was next to us walking <laughs> and we were walking and we got to the end and we looked at each other and we were like, did that just happen? <laughs> like, that just happened. Like, we just landed here. Right. We changed. We got in a car and boom. That was that was surreal, and I, I don't remember it at all. I see photos of it, and I go, sure. "Oh yeah, that happened," but I have no recollection of that um, because it's just a whirlwind. And you know, Denver Film was a lot like it. We had uh, we sold out every screening in Denver. I think we had four, maybe even five screenings in Denver. We sold them all out. We had a big premiere party, all that kinds of stuff. But you That's know, awesome. it's hard to remember because you know it's it's like a blur. And it's, a, it's almost like uh, I I liken it to my wedding day. You you sure you're making this film for so long and and you slave over it and you worry about it and you fret about it and you you get it lined up and you submit it to festivals and do on and on and on and then you finally roll it out into the world and then just it's over like that i'm sure i've I've never been married i've never walked done the wedding but i assume it's a lot the same you plan and plan and and i'm telling you (laughs) the way you're describing that i go that could be a wedding day yeah and it's probably just like it you know it's it's wild i mean i wish you know there's those moments where you wish in your life you could stop and slow down time yeah savor it it's like i want to be living in the memories of right now you know um you know that these memories are going to be amazing and you know it's all incredible and the the just the honor of being able to play your film in front of audiences is is indescribable and you kind of stop and wish you could stop and just go can i just pause time (laughs) yeah and just remember just breathe and remember this moment but it just goes so fast it's crazy man you said you've been uh, a theater maker your entire life right and you're making theater right now but working with kids, right? Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to talk about that quite a bit. I, awesome. I'm, I'm interested in the origin story, but I want to make sure we talk about what you're doing right now because the little bit I know about it sounds really cool. Yeah. So uh, the, my main effort right now is a is an organization called Modest Arts, and it is a youth-based college prep program in theater and film um, for kids who – it's really for high school kids who either are a little underserved by their current high school – or their high school is great, but they could they want more. Or they really see themselves going to college and professionally to pursue a career theater and film. And, and I give them the extra, extra productions, extra work, extra schooling. You know, Just like at bats. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, like, yeah. Is, like get as many at bats as you can. Working in in this milieu, it's, it, a, it's it, a great way of saying it. And also, I have a lot of I've been studying theater my whole life. I have a lot of experience and a lot of um, things I can teach them to get them ready for college, even more than ready for college, to help them excel and, and succeed and get them ready for their college auditions. I know what you know. A lot of the college, you know, the, what they're looking for in these actors, and I can get them prepped um, and get them ready for those auditions so they can get the best scholarships and get you know what they need. But yes. a lot of it, yes, is just giving them more work. Yeah. More work, demanding more of them, asking a lot of them, and pushing them as hard as I can so that they can they can flourish, really. So, like, what types of work will you give a high school student that they might not otherwise get otherwise? Well, um... I said it, otherwise twice. You no, know, it's, it's, it needs to be said. Uh, otherwise <laughs> is key. Um, 
you know, obviously a lot of the high schools around the area, they do shows and they do some classwork. Um, what we do is we do it. We have a company experience. So if you join Modest Arts, you're a mem- you're, you're put into a, a company and you're a member of that company. Now that company will then go on to create work in itself. Really? So right now that the company is creating a new musical. Uh, a brand new musical out of um, found music and some and creating text and uh, putting that together. So uh, not only is it the experience that they're going to get doing shows, we just we just closed Romeo and Juliet in January, which you go, oh, Romeo and Juliet's been around forever. But I gave them the opportunity to create sort of invent their sort of version of Romeo and Juliet. Wow. Um, and it was very much a youth in revolt, very, very modern music, very, very modern interpretation. It was very much them now and what they deal with now. And so uh, they have the opportunity to create and invent and, um, uh, yeah, really be artists and not just um, actors. I think sometimes the kids go through high school and they, you know, they divide them up. Okay, these group of kids are going to be actors. These group of kids are going to be techies. Uh, I make right. my techies act and my actors do tech. Um, but I think a lot of it is, okay, what role am I going to play now? And it's a lot of, well, I auditioned, I got the part. I learned the part, I played the part. I auditioned, I got the part, I learned the part, I played the part. And what I'm trying to do is give them an experience that is, you know, I walked into a room with a, with, with a group of fellow artists and we created. Wow. And we came out the other end with a piece of art that we feel like we created, that we feel ownership over. And so uh, that's the experience I'd like them to walk away with. That sounds like an amazing experience because the way you described, you know, I auditioned for the part, I learned the part, I got the part, I learned the part, I did it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that feels like sort of uh, a lot of what most people's high school theater experience is. And that's certainly what mine was. I didn't have necessarily – I wasn't self-driven enough at that point to ask for more work. And the kids who were, I think, flourished quite a bit. And, you know, they, they got to set lights and they got to learn sound cues and, you know, build sets and all that. I don't necessarily – like, had I had something like you had, uh, I might have taken more ownership over it and maybe pursued it a little more. But um, I was kind of happy to just learn my part and, and do that part. But it sounds like these kids almost self-select. To go into a program like yours. Yeah, they do. And, and you know, the one thing I, I you know, I, when I first got into the educational aspect of theater, I really thought my direction would be college <clears throat> and university. And I do really like, I, I co-taught at um, University of Colorado Denver, and I directed some plays at CU Denver. And I really kind of thought that that would be where I'd find a home. And, and certainly a lot of great, great theater artists find their home there. Mm-hmm. Um and I kind of fell backwards, really, really weirdly backwards into working with high school students. And at first I thought, okay, well, I'll do this. You know, they're high school kids. It'll be fun. I loved theater when I was in high school. This would be great. And I really learned a lot about high school age kids and that they have this innate need to perform. It's very different than college and professional. In college and professional, they enjoy performing. They are performers. But they have this kind of like, you know, I'm performing. I really like it. But I also have a day job or I also see myself doing this. Or, right. you know, if it's not Hollywood, it's not it's not good enough. And um, the high school kids just have a need to perform. If you're the guy that has the keys that can open the door to the place <laughs> with the stage, they right. are super enthusiastic about working with you. And so – you know, that's a good point. I, I just want to digress yeah, real quick. Course. At our cast parties, we we were still just like, we're done performing this play. At our cast parties, we're still playing improv games. Yes. You know, like, you're right. That's crazy. No, they do. And because of that in, inherent need to perform and because they're so young, they have yet to learn that they can't do anything. They can do anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think even when you get to college, you're like, well, I can do these seven things and these couple I'm okay with, but these four don't even try. At high school, they're like, yeah, just show me the door. Show me the path. What's What, what do you want me to do? Right. You want me to do what now? And They just go for it. They right? go for it and they embrace it. And as long as you can support them and as long as you can give them you know, the strength and support to do it, they can accomplish it. And it's really, really incredible. They're bound by nothing. And um, you know, I, I think we get caught up in thinking, well, they're high school – they're high school age, so their talent level, I mean, it's only going to be, they're only so developed. They only have so much wisdom. They only have so much practice. Yes, but the trade-off is that they're bound by nothing. And so you can put them in, in, in amazing experiences and amazing work and, and give them a lot to do, and they can accomplish it. And uh, watching them accomplish it is so much more rewarding than um, even working with professionals or even college students where you're like, I, I knew you were going to get there and you did. Sometimes you work with these kids and you go, I have no idea if you're going to get there, but <laughs> You know, here's the hoop. See if you can jump. And when they do, um, you know, not only have you have or do you feel as an artist like you've overcome something, right. but what they feel and their parents feel and their families and their friends, it's it's really really overwhelming. Wow. 
So if you don't mind digging into this a little bit, I mean, this is a program that's in addition to sort of whatever they're getting at their high school, right? Yeah. You know, I really, really – when I started it, you know, my your first fear is I was a high school teacher. I am a high school teacher, and I, I taught high school theater for years. Are um, you still teaching high school theater? I am not teaching high school theater right now. Okay. Um, all of my theater focus right now is in modest arts. Um, okay. And, and there's plenty of, of reasons for that. But – when I started it, I really didn't want to take away from high school programs. I really wanted to add. Mm-hmm. I wanted to add to what high school students get, not take away from high school theaters. Okay. So uh, I, when I first set it up, uh, we, I decided that I would do shows in January and June. No one, no high yeah, school did anything go. in January and June. Um, certainly when I taught high school theater, we did very little in January and we did nothing in June. So I started with that as the concept. Certainly there are, there are kids in my program who have taken uh, Modest Arts as their theater program. They have, you know, they are not doing theater in their high school or they don't offer theater. I've got two kids from Montbello High School right now mm-hmm. who um, Montbello a number of years ago was divided up into, I think, four schools and three of the four schools, I don't believe, have access to the theater. They, they don't have that. That's not in the curriculum. So I've got two kids in my program who otherwise wouldn't have theater if it wasn't for Modest Arts. So it's a blend. It's a mix. It's kids that are, you know, adding to their theater experience and it's kids that are using it as their theater experience, and it's kids that without it wouldn't have access to a theater experience. And um, if I can continue to provide that opportunity for kids, I'm going to do it. So my question is, hearing that, how are you? Like, how how do you sustain yourself? How do you get funding? Where does it come from? Right now, Modest Arts is it's self sustaining. It doesn't mean it's paying me very much, but it's self-sustaining <laughs> in the fact that the kids can – they pay for classes. Okay. And then um, we sell tickets to the shows. And somewhere between those two things, we're yeah, able tickets, to – Tickets, duh. We're, yeah, but, you know, I mean, we keep tickets at a reasonable price well, of for course. families. And, you know, it, I, we did Romeo and Juliet in January, and we – Probably maybe broke even, maybe. You know, we probably sold enough tickets to cover the cost of the set and the lights and the costumes and, you know, or, or we were very, very close. And, and and if we can stay like that, we'll, we'll exist for a very long time. Yeah, no. um, so right now, Modest Arts can, can finance itself and, and, and continue to exist. One day, I'd love to see it get to the point where it's bringing on multiple staff and, and extra teachers and offering more sections of classes than I can offer by myself right now. As as it grows, I mean, we just started in October, so as it grows, yeah. we'll see. But right now, it's 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 an amazing it's an amazing amazing program where the kids can really be, you know, they're they're open to anything and they're capable of anything. And so when you put open anything and capable of anything together, um, it basically the limit is your creativity. <laughs> and so that's where we're at right now. Well, dude, I'll tell you, it's funny. I was looking on your Facebook wall before we did this interview, and you had multiple kids. Posting the same meme that said like a high school theater, yeah, a high school theater teacher made a difference in my life, yeah. and so I saw that I go, that's awesome because my high school theater teacher was a guy named John Klug. Uh, I think back on my experience with him very fondly, you know, and I think about not only him but the environment that he facilitated to where I came together with all these awesome people. So yeah, I was taught by a guy named Frank Early who I who I learned high school theater from, and um, Frank Early is an amazing, amazing, amazing man, and um, you know, create an environment where I could be me and um, flourish. And so sometimes when you have that experience, you spend your whole life trying to figure out how to give back. And so I look at things like that and it's amazing and the kids write amazing things and they're, they're amazing, amazing kids and, and they, they inspire me every single day. But, you know, I look at that and I go, okay, I've given something back. And, you know, I think as artists, a lot of our job is to give back and our job is to say, okay, I mean, I got, we just described it. I got to walk on the red <laughs> carpet next to Bill Paxton and get interviewed by press. Well, I get off that carpet and I go, now I got to give back. Yeah. Now I got to turn around and say, this art has given so much to me. What can I give back? And so I like I to think of it back. as paying it forward. Yeah. It's probably a good way of thinking about and it. And because I, and I say that because when I started my job, when I got out of grad school, I didn't know what I was doing. And I got set up with a bunch of informational interviews and people were very generous with their time. I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I didn't know even what kind of job I wanted. I just went and asked them about their job. And at the end of it, I go, God, I know you're busy. Like you have this really important job with, you know, the chamber or whoever. Um, What can I do for you? They go, don't, you don't need to do anything for me. Just pay it forward. And so it's such a cool philosophy. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I've inspired a small chunk of a generation of kids, that are going to go forward in their lives and do something empowering with the arts and, and keep the arts alive and continue to 
push it and break new barriers and, you know, engage the next generation in art, then I, I think I've done something right. And, you know, I mean, we, like I said, we get this great gift, this opportunity to perform and create art and tell stories. And if I can inspire someone else to want to do the same thing and give them the, the foundation and the, and the, you know, lay the groundwork so that they can tell stories and, and, and be an artist and then they can do the same for somebody else yeah. and then we'll have it forever. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly what we want and what we need. And it brings me to an important point. If you Google your name, oh yeah, there are a couple of presentations that come up where you're talking about getting people back into the theater. Oh, okay. Is that accurate? Is this ringing a bell? No. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are these things? I wonder. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll take a look at them when we're done here. Okay. But, um, at the nut of one of the presentations was there's this notion that kids have left the theater because they're more into their personal devices. Sure. They don't have as much control. Sure. You know, how do we, is it their fault that they're not in the theater? And the assertion of this presentation was that no, it is, it's not their fault. It's our fault. It, we need to yeah. engage them in new ways because right. it, it's, it's up to us to evolve to cater to what our audience want, not necessarily to cater, not to pander, sure. you know, not to, not to grandstand or patronize them, sure. but to engage them in a new way to where they want to be engaged in the theater. Yeah. You know, we, um, Romeo and Juliet did a, did a performance for, for these, Mon for Montbello, for this, for every, I think every 11th grader in one of the schools that doesn't have access to theater. Yeah. And um, afterwards, the the teacher there, um, his name is Derek Nason, and a, and a really amazing teacher, he was doing video testimonials with the kids. You know, what'd you think? What was your favorite part? And one of the kids said, I'd never seen a play before, and <laughs> now I want to see more plays. <laughs> and to me, that was the whole point of doing it. There, there you go. I don't care if Romeo and Juliet lost $1,000. That right there was the <laughs> right. value. A kid had never seen a play. They saw a play. They want to see more plays. And I, but I, I strongly do believe, I, I don't believe it's not the kid's fault. It's, it's not the youth's fault. It's not the generation's fault. I really get annoyed with people pointing their finger at millennials and saying it's these damn millennials. Oh, um, you have no idea how much that gets my oh, goat. It's, and it, you need to be on the side of youth. Like, the, yes. the youth is the future. Yes. And, so they go, so goes the world. And if we can inspire them to look at the arts that we appreciate and we love, then we can make a difference. You know, one of the part, one of the things that Modest Arts is going to do in the next couple, uh, I think it's about 12 weeks away, we're doing this class called, um, basically it's aesthetic inquiry. It's what is art? Why do we look at it? And we're mostly going to go to museums and we're going to go see opera and we're going to go see ballet. And we're going to talk about what it is. What is this? What is art? How do we look at art? How should we look at art? Because I think sometimes we lose track of that. If a millennial doesn't like going and looking at art, it's because we didn't take them to enough museums. It's because we didn't teach them why Van Gogh painted the way he did or why Picasso painted the way he did or, or who Jackson Pollock was. And if we can't connect with these kids, what are we going to do? Uh, one of the most amazing things, the most I, I did a production of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with these kids, and you know we're doing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and they're reading, they're we're, they're doing the play and whatever, and I'm encouraged some of them to read the book, and I, and I stopped at one point, I said, you know, when Mary Shelley wrote this, she was like 18 years old, I mean, she's you, yeah. she's you, <laughs> telling this story. She doesn't know anything about science, she doesn't know anything about medicine, and she's telling this story about somebody who's so afraid of death that they play God, and when they realized that they had a moment of like, oh my God. She's my age. She wrote this book when she was my age. Then they stopped and had a completely different appreciation for it. It's about communicating to the the youth, the millennials, whatever, about what it is about it that makes it important. And yeah. if we as educators and as human beings can't communicate why, if we can't put the why on it, then we're failing. And you can't be upset at someone who looks at a YouTube video all day long and won't go look at you know a beautiful piece of art and say, well... It's the YouTube fault. It's the YouTuber's <laughs> fault. It's everything wrong with it, except for the fact that I haven't taught you to look at a Jackson Pollock and see and get something from it. Or we haven't we haven't said, here's what it means. Here's what it is. Okay, now, how do we evolve from here? Right. And True. so, and you, you encourage ownership and you encourage people to take the next step. Right. It, it's one thing to appreciate it. It's another to encourage creation, which is what we really want. Well, you know, I always looked at theater. I would say that, say to people, you know, I'm not competing with the other theaters around. I'm actually competing with film and competing with television and yeah. competing with YouTube because that's the content that people are used to ingesting. So I can't stop and say, well, is my theater better than the theater down the street? Not that I care about better than or what that means, but, <laughs> right. but because no one's watching the theater down the street and no one's watching my theater. If we can't get to that audience that goes and sees the Avengers on a, on a Friday night, then we're not 
doing it right. And so when I create theater, my goal is to create theater for an audience that is used to watching movies and used to watching music videos and used to watching that type of content because that's the audience I'm connecting with. If I can successfully reach that audience, then I can do anything. I mean, in some ways, a piece of theater, which is actors in a room standing around you know, a table, has sort of become a museum piece. Hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. We go right. to museums to see museum pieces. I like to look at dinosaur bones. Right. I go to the museum to look at dinosaur bones. And sometimes we go to theater to see a dinosaur bone. This is how it was done. Have you ever gone with Ian Cook? <laughs> yeah. yeah talk about somebody who loves dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you lose no, your train no. of thought. No, but. no, I'm not. No, I, I think, I, you know, I just think it's interesting. I think we have to understand what we're doing. And when we put a piece of theater out there that is um, derivative, directly derivative of the kind of theater that was being staged in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, we need to recognize it as what it is. This is a museum piece. You are seeing theater as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have to recognize that that means that theater as it is must be different and that we must embrace theater as it is um, and be open to that as well. And that seeing a dinosaur bone is only that. It is a historical event. We also need to recognize that theater needs to be as much of the 21st century as film is. You watch a movie, you watch a movie, you know, you watch a great movie from the 70s or a great movie from the 30s. And you go, wow, that's a great movie. And not just for the time that that's a great movie. But we recognize that it lives in a time and place. And we look at special effects from, you know, Superman 1, and we go, wow, this is, these special effects are horrid. Um, (laughs) but, but we look at special effects now and we go, but they've changed and they've grown and we can recognize the, the Superman flying and Superman 1 was limited by what they had. And we can watch it and go, we're not going to watch it and focus on the limitations. We're going to watch it and focus on what they accomplished. Circa 19, whenever. Right. And, um, and, and what you're describing in terms of the theater is not instead of necessarily. No. It's, it's in addition to. It's also. That's, yeah. a, that's a great way of saying it. It's also that we can have theater of the 21st century and we can have theater of the 18th century or Shakespeare of the 16th century. We can century. have classical style theater. We can have it all. Right. And we don't need to be purists. We don't need to stop and say, well, this is better than or the only way to do theater is blank. And I think when we get ourselves caught like that, then we start all looking like we belong in a museum (laughs) and instead of actually looking like we belong on a stage. And we need to recognize that as artists and say, "Okay, it's not about saying to the millennial or saying to the young person, why don't you appreciate my art? It's about saying to that person. Let's make art that you can get behind yeah. and let's make art that we can all get behind. That you're super make... enthused about. Yes. Yes. And, I, you know, if you came and saw a modest arts production, you'd go, oh, my God, these kids. The North Denver Tribune wrote a story about Romeo and Juliet. And one of the things he hit on was like there was not a weak link. Hmm. The kids were so invested, even if they had the smallest <laughs> role or the biggest role, because they embraced it. I mean, it was like modern music with hip hop and dancing and singing. And they were able to show shake, showcase their talents and it doesn't matter if they were playing a four-line part or playing Romeo. They embraced the entire project as right. a company. And you can do that. You can do that. You know, there's that, there's that famous line in theater, you were a theater guy, uh, that says, you know, there's no small parts, just small actors. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I always stop and go, no, there's small parts. No, there are small parts. <laughs> I, I think we recognize there are small parts. I mean, <laughs> but we also recognize there are also small actors. And if we can get a big actor in a small part, then that small part will flourish and grow and we'll have an amazing sure. show. And that's what I want to do is put, let's put big actors, let's put big actors in every part. Yeah, we're not playing t-ball here. We're not trying to hide someone in right field. No. Like you, you want every single aspect yes. of this production to shine. Yes. yes. And you know that I played right field <laughs> and um, <laughs> no, not surprising. I played right field and you know. I'm hoping that I was put in right field because that was where I could shine. You right. know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. That was where I shined. I probably was putting on skits out there in right field because no <laughs> one could hit it that far. But, you know, that was where I could shine. I was never going to shine at second base. I was going to get murdered. Right. I couldn't shine as a pitcher. No way. But maybe on right field, given the exact right support and the right leadership and the right team around me, hey, I had that right field handled. Yeah. And that's what you're going for is saying, you know, let's all – Let's all embrace the fact that this is what we're going to experience. We're going to do it as a team, and as a team, we're going to accomplish something big. You know, it's funny talking about this evolution of theater. One of the one of the plays I saw a couple of years ago was at the Curious Theater, and it was the elaborate entrance of Chad Deity. I don't know if you know that one, but uh, it was written by a guy who was a huge professional wrestling enthusiast, and it touched on issues of race and class and you know, money and motivation. And I mean, Roland Bart writes a lot about professional wrestling. So it was almost that distilled into its essence. And they had like live wrestling action 
Like they built a ring. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I can't believe like this is like, I can't believe I'm seeing this in a theater. It's so great. And I was so excited and so jazzed by it. And so I think that speaks to exactly what you're trying to do with these kids. Yeah. I I think we need to get out of our own way. Um, You you know, we as artists, um, especially theater artists need to get out of our own way. And I think we stand in our own way. And sometimes, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of amazing, amazing directors who go, you know, I just, it's just how it's supposed to be. It's actors in a room. You Are know? they too precious about it? Like, uh, maybe. Like, do we have to do Death of a Salesman or 12 Angry Men or, you know? It, you know, I, I think, I think like what you said earlier, we do have to do Death of a Salesman and we do have to do 12 Angry Men, but we also have to do okay, yeah. the play you're talking about. And I think that. But we don't only have to do Death of a Salesman. No, we don't only right, have to do 12 right. Angry Men. And I, it's not just that, it's not just that. I think sometimes we, we look. And I hate saying we, I mean, we as, you know, we as theater makers, but I'm certainly talking about those who refuse to kind of become part of a, of a modern theater movement. And I think they say, this is how it's supposed to be. (laughs) And I think that's the problem is it's not supposed to be anything. It's, it's supposed to be what it can be. It's supposed to be what audiences want to watch. It's supposed to be what artists want to tell. It's not supposed to be anything else. And at the time when Death of a Salesman was written, that was how it was supposed to be. And at the time in which Romeo and Juliet was written, that was how it was supposed to be. And you can go all the way back to Oedipus Rex and beyond. That was how it was supposed to be. But right now, right now in 2016, tell me what theater is supposed to be. It, it's supposed to be what the limits of our creativity can create. And so that is what it's supposed to be. And uh, I hope that as we move forward that the next generation of artists you know, embrace what it's supposed to be is what they want to make it and what audiences want to see. And maybe three hours of people standing around a table having a chit-chat is not what audiences want to see. And then we'd have to stop and say maybe it's not what it's supposed to be. Maybe it's supposed to be something different and something bigger and something more um, more engaging to a, a modern audience. Right. Maybe it's not Socrates standing up just reading the Phaedrus to us for an hour. Maybe it's not. And maybe there's still a home for that. And like I said, you know, I, I still go to the museum. I still look at dinosaur bones. We sure. all do. But I think we need to recognize what it is and call it what it is and say that this, this, this piece of theater is where we're going to, I'm going to want to show you a dinosaur bone, a big, beautiful dinosaur bone that we can all respect that once upon a time, this was what it was and we can respect what it was. And, you know, I love going to the art museum and, you know, you see, you know, you, you look at uh, a Michelangelo and you compare it to an Andy Warhol and you go, yeah. We're talking about two totally different worlds here. Right. And they both exist and they both live in the same museum. And that's what's compelling about it. Yeah. And they're both worth considering and consuming. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what a shame to not have Andy Warhol just because we looked at Michelangelo and said, this is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Or uh, taking it even further to an extreme, someone like Banksy. Sure. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny because Banksy has defined what street art is supposed to be. Once upon a time, this guy was, you know guy or question mark um this you know this question mark was doing things that were like no this can't happen how can you paint on my wall and now we go oh can i please get a banksy on my wall (laughs) um you know i mean it's it's you know he has defined what it's supposed to be and then and pretty soon there will be the next generation of street artists who look at banksy and go i'm not doing it the way he did it i'm not doing it that way i'm going to do it the way it's supposed to be now and more power to him do it Paint over that Banksy. No, please don't paint over that Banksy. <laughs> but, you know, don't. I mean, paint next to that Banksy, something bigger, better, um, and show us how it's supposed to be. And if, if artists continue to create it and continue to have that mantra of the way I'm doing it now is how it's supposed to be, then we will have art. We will always have art. We will have amazing art. We will go through amazing art movements, and we will continue to have the the powerful art that we feel like sometimes is slipping through our fingers, like opera and ballet and theater. I could listen to you talk about this literally all day, <laughs> but your listeners probably don't want to. But uh, <laughs> we are running up against the uh, the time constraint oh, here. Okay. So, given that you were creating theater and creating film, are you still creating film? Are you active yeah. in that? I mean, I, yeah, you, yeah. you told me you're an actor, Martinez. Yeah. But I, are you still directing and doing stuff? Yeah. You know. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because you know you, you only have so much time in a day, and you right. know, sometimes you know you're John of all, you're the John of all trades. I feel like I'm the Neil of all trades, and you know you can only do so much. And sometimes you know you get so focused in an area that other areas get less of your attention. Sure. Um, yes, I still I still like making films. I still like writing um, scripts. Uh, we have some film ideas that we're we we'd like to make in the next couple of years. But certainly, with all the other things I do, that has not been my foremost activity and, and and sometimes I wish it was but the the amazing thing is you know we sat here we, we debated theater at length we talked about film earlier there are really two 
they're very similar mediums, but they're very different. Theater is a regional art form. It is for the people in that region, huh. other than Broadway. Right, yeah, right? of course. Other than Broadway, which goes on national tour. So when you create theater, you're creating it for a regional audience. I'm speaking to the people in Denver. When you create film, you're speaking to an international or national audience. So they're just they're different mediums as a director and as a, as a writer. You're shaping it for who your audience is. So if I'm putting a theater piece together, it's for the people that live in the community in which this play is happening. When you create a film, you're talking to... You know the international, the broader audience of who might see this. So, as an artist, you're working just with two completely different aesthetics based on you know who your intended audience is. And so, I have some film ideas, and, and we see ourselves making some more films. And I'd like to definitely direct more film as soon as I carve out some appropriate time. <laughs> right. Well, I'll tell you what, man. Listening to you is just energizing. And so, whatever art you are creating, I want to support, and I want people to be more aware of. So, this is the time in the show where. Please point us to anywhere you want us to go. Uh, how can we support you? How can we learn more about you? How can we learn more about Modest Arts? Um, well, you can go to modestarts.org. Um, that's where we that's where we live and where we exist. Um, the classes are taught at an amazing place called Redline, which is an amazing art gallery downtown, which I love that these kids are literally in an art gallery doing their art. Um, that's cool. It's very cool. It's, 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 it's visual art is all around them. They're creating a performing art. It's very, very powerful, but go to modestarts.org. Um, you can check us out. We're on Facebook as well. Modest arts. And that's how you can get involved. Um, all the other things I do, the Denver film festival is an amazing thing. They're at denverfilm.org and you should get involved and, and become a member and see films. And yeah, I mean, anywhere, if you're, if you're creating art in your community, you're doing an amazing thing. And, um, I hope that I can, um, reach more kids and do more and we're always looking for new kids and always try to grow and expand and work with other artists so yeah modestarts.org that's where you find me well god bless you sir keep doing the great work thanks for taking some time being on the show and uh man continued success to you thank you so much john i appreciate having me and let's close the curtain here on episode 92 of the john of all trades podcast with neil trulio founder of modest arts and just a super dude. I hope he's working Denver Film Festival next year because he's a joy to work with. He is a guy who is on point and a guy concerned and interested in bringing good stuff into the world. It's the type of thing that I adore and I wish Neil all the success in the world. Let's pay some love to our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Running an online campaign, looking to reach new people, Four Degrees can help you do that and help you do it in a very cost-effective manner. I've worked with them extensively and I continue to do more. They're brilliant at what they do. You should really give them a ring. So check them out on the web. Number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. This episode is a production of Deft Communications. Check us out on the web, deftcom.us, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Additionally, more ways to interact with the John of All Trades podcast. Four major platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Snapchat. All of them under the same handle, J-O-A-T-Pod. So follow us, friend us, like us, do everything that you can do on those platforms. Facebook, of course, is the only place where you'll find out about upcoming guests. And I also give you exclusive episode previews on Monday. So like us on Facebook. I'm back here next week. Episode 93 will be coming right after this one. So tune in next week. New episodes go live on Wednesday. And until we see you then, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.